Mother's Day. And I want you to be thinking about your moms, be thinking about your upbringing, how you were raised, and some common things that moms might say. For example, moms are great at saying, I love you. I love you expresses the love and affection toward their children. And moms are also good at saying, be careful. They always want their kids to be safe and to avoid harm. But how many of you have also heard your mom said, say, because I said so? <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing you got. Or, because I'm the mom, that's why. I mean, moms are good at, at taking charge of the home. Uh, eat your vegetables. Moms encourage their kids toward healthy eating and to get all the necessary nutrients. And did you brush your teeth? That's a favorite saying right before they go to bed, and it doesn't matter how many times you say it, somebody has always forgotten to brush their teeth or just flat out refused to do it. Uh, clean up your room. Kids love to hear that one. Moms wish they didn't have to be told. Don't talk to strangers. Okay, I think moms and dads both say that one. Uh, time to go to bed. Maybe that's for kids the favorite thing they hear from their mom. Wait till your father gets home. Oh boy. Now we're in for it. I'm proud of you. Moms are often always there for their kids. They're there to greet them off the finish line, to let them know how proud they are of their children, how well they did. I'm here for you. Moms always want their children to know that they are there. I mean, there's something so dear and so precious about moms. Especially when they say, don't kick the ball in the house. Or, what happened to your pants? I mean, moms don't miss a beat. But they're very central figures in our lives. And there's not much that escapes a mom. For example, you get a cut, or you get a boot bruise, or you get an owie. Mom is usually always the first one there. You tell a fib or a lie, mom's going to be the first to catch it. She's got the truth detector built into her nose. And when you don't eat all your food or who left that dish on the table and forgot to put it away, mom will be there to correct you and point that out. If you're a child who's sad or if your heart has been broken, moms are the first responders. They're oftentimes and generally the first ones to care. When you're still on your phone at night or you don't turn off the computer, your moms are there to provide guidance and correction and a short shout of instruction. When your kids are out at night or when they are not where they should be, moms are always the ones to stay up, never to go to sleep until all the kids are safely home. And moms and dads often parent differently. Let's, I haven't tested the sound, but let's see if this works out. Uh, it works great, doesn't it? Hang on a second. I think he needs just to hit play. Yeah, that is such a good video, we're not gonna hear it today. Wait, it does work. This doesn't work, it will. That didn't work. I need my mom. 
Yeah, mom's the first one to call when you give in a bind. Try that. I don't know if that'll work. This is great. You know, I've been a parent, I guess now, 36 years. And one thing I've discovered is that moms and dads tend to have different forms of parenting. Moms are usually a lot more loving, nurturing, caring. Oh, come here, baby. You fall. Don't let mommy give you a hug. You know, dads are usually a little bit more business. Just a little bit. I'm going to show you a couple of videos that's going to kind of show you what I'm talking about. The first one is a mom who uh, is trying to brush her kid's hair. This is a mother just trying to brush a kid's hair. Check it out. parenting every child. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at what kind of lessons can we learn by, by looking at some of the mothers in the Bible. And the first one I want to point out is the person Eve. See, Eve, Adam and Eve, last week we spent a lot of time learning about how Eve was deceived. Thank you. And how Adam followed along with her. But you know what? Even after, after she was banished from the garden, I believe she turns around. She turns around and we see this example in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Genesis 4, verse 1. If you have a Bible, turn there. Because Eve conceives. And she says, and she gives credit to God. She says in Genesis 4, verse 1, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. With the help of the Lord. After being banished to the garden, she gives birth to a son, and she makes this declaration, and she acknowledges help from the divine. Mothers, what can you learn here is that when you have a child, that child is a gift from the Lord. It's with the help of the Lord that you need to raise them or rear them or train them. I'm reminded of what King David said in the Psalms in Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And there's often times in a mom's life, you're going to need to look to the Lord for help. God, I need your help in raising this child, especially the unruly ones. Psalm 121, verse 1, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come from? My help cometh from the Lord. When you're feeling weak, when you don't know what to do, recognize your help comes from the Lord. Eve recognized this with the help of the Lord. I brought forth a man and later on she gave birth to another son. Once again, she acknowledges God. God has granted me another child in the place of Abel. And I'm reminded of the words in the book of James where James 1.17 says this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. But the next verse after that says this, He chose to give us birth, speaking of spiritual birth, through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. See, recognize your children come from the Lord as well. Your children are a gift from God. And if you look at children as a gift from God, how does that change the way that you view them? How does that change the way you handle them and take care of them and love them and nurture them as a gift from the Lord? How do you care for a child who is a gift from God? How do you entrust your child to him and say, God, I give you my child and I ask you to help me. See, Eve doesn't say much else. Nothing else is recorded of what she says in scripture in her post fallen world. But when she does, she references her child and, and the help that she gets from the Lord. The James passages also points out, though, our need for spiritual birth. When it says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. As parents, we need to speak 
truth into our sons and daughters' lives that they might know Him, that they might know Jesus, that they might have a relationship with God. See, it says in Scripture, it has been appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. The Bible speaks of heaven and hell and life eternal. In addition to physical birth, our children need spiritual birth. Being born of Adam, the original sin, as we come into the world, we need and, and are reminded, like Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, he must be born again. And so mothers, parents, recognize your children are from God. And your help comes from the Lord. Now, we go to the next big man in Scripture whose wife is not mentioned by name. There's no passage to turn to, but I'm thinking of Noah. And not much is said about Noah's wife except that she made it into the ark, which was a pretty big feat to do. Not only did she make it into the ark, Noah's sons and their wives made it into the ark, and it takes a righteous woman to do that. Mothers often carry that load of nurture. They often carry that power of presence. They're often, whether real or perceived, often the ones who are most often there. Uh, they say that behind every good man, there's a good woman. What happens if you have a rotten man? Does that doesn't always follow the same. There's been many a good woman who's been married to a bad man and a few good men connected to some bad women. But what I will say is this. You set the example. You raised the bar. You set the tone. That family would not have made it into the ark if both parents weren't on board. And that's our next example after Noah is this, Isaac and Rebecca. See, the, the second principle I want to teach by the outline today is that parents should strive to be on the same page. Parents should strive to be on the same page. And sometimes in life, and even in Scripture, we learn by reverse example. We learn what not to do by those who have done it before us. That's one of the best ways to learn. It's also one of the way, reasons to read books. So you can learn what not to do from others rather than having to go through it yourself and then you end up writing your own book of all the mistakes and failures you've made. And even when we read the book, sometimes we don't follow everything they tell us to do. But as parents, we should strive to be on the same page. And if you turn over in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 25, Abraham, Sarah, pray for a son. God gives them Isaac. There's also Ishmael in the picture. Lots of lessons to be learned by trial and error. But then we get to where Isaac decides he wants to find a wife of his own. He marries Rebecca, and they have two sons who are twins. One was red and hairy, the other was clever and smooth-skinned. Smooth it says in Genesis 25, verse 27, the boys grew up, and Esau went to the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. What can parents sometimes do wrong? Sometimes parents do wrong when they play favorites, if not always. And Isaac and Rebekah, 
each chose their twin. If Jacob's name meant supplanter, or a broader interpretation would be deceiver, taking the place over someone else, usually on purpose, and especially by force or trickery, Jacob's mother was on the same page. Is that It was at, like they were running off the same playbook. First, Jacob stole his brother's birthright, and second, he supplanted his brother's blessing, all with the help of his mom. You can read the story in Genesis 25 on. What's interesting about this whole story and this whole picture is that for Isaac and Rebekah, their marriage was almost like a match made in heaven. Uh, if you're married and you've been there, if you've done that, maybe you, you've been married on, and you're on your second or third or fourth marriage, and maybe there was a time in your life where you prayed and you prayed and you prayed that God would send you the right person, the right man, or the right woman. And in this situation, Isaac's father, his dad, sent one of his servants to go over to another town, another country, to find a wife for his son, or to look among the family clan. And the servant wanted to find a wife, a good wife, from among the family clan. And so he prayed as he, as he got there, as he approached that place, he said, Lord, please send the one. When I was in college, they in Christian University, there was always this theory about God has that one person for you, that one and only. The problem with the one and only theory is that if one person gets it wrong, it screws up all the rest. But just remember that. I had a mentor tell me, you make a decision and you make it right. He went on to say there are no right decisions, but you got to carry that in mind. You make a decision and then you make it right. You make a commitment to a relationship you make it right. But this servant prayed specifically, Lord, please send me the one. And when she comes, Genesis 24, verse 14, may it be that when I say to her, please let down your jar, that I may have a drink. She says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. I always like to tell single men, men, you want to find a woman who will water your camels. Because that was the test that uh, the servant had for the woman that he was going to find for Isaac. But what do I mean by that? This woman was a servant. This woman went above and beyond. This woman took the form of humility and administered gladly godly character by her life in action. She showed compassion. She worked hard. Except that later on she resorted to trickery like her son, with her son. Maybe her mom's, maybe the son's trickery rubbed off from his mom. I don't know. What happened in that relationship between Isaac and Rebekah, between Jacob and Esau? Esau, a man of the field, Jacob, a man who stayed close to home, mama's boy. He liked to work in the kitchen. He liked making stew. But you know what? God uses both. God uses both. And I'm going to suggest that God even uses our messes, our failures, our screw-ups, our mistakes, the bad decisions he made, we make, not me, the bad decisions we make, he can turn around and use them for our good and his glory. It, it, it's beyond comprehending, but God can take our mistakes 
He's not thwarted by it. And as Esau um, was born, he's coming out of the womb, Jacob grabbed his brother's heel. And this pronouncement was made by God when it said, Genesis chapter 5, verse 23. The Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Esau was older by a hair, and yet Jacob ended up obtaining the birthright and the blessing. And the prophecy, the prediction was fulfilled. Still, I would suggest that it's wise for parents to strive to be on the same page when it comes to parenting. It's really hard to raise your kids with two different sets of instructions, and then you'll have them playing favorites between dad and mom. I remember doing that as a kid. You see, I grew up in a house with five siblings um, and one mom and one dad. And one of the things that we had in our household growing up was the eight-hour TV rule. Now, there were five of us kids, get you. And we were only allowed, between the five of us, to watch eight hours of TV only in a week. But here was a problem. We would come home from school, and we'd want to watch the Waltons. Can you believe it? We'd want to watch Little House on the Prairie, and Gilligan's Island, and the Brady Bunch. And on Mondays, if I get the nights wrong, just forgive me and read in. On Mondays, it was Scarecrow and Mrs. King. On Tuesdays, it was Remington Steel and Heart to Heart. On Wednesdays, we had church. On Thursdays, it was Magnum P.I. and Riptide and Simon and Simon. On Fridays, it was Dukes of Hazard and Knight Rider and Airwolf and Miami Vice and A-Team. There was the Incredible Hulk and the Great American Hero. And on Saturday mornings, we wanted three or four hours of cartoons. Late at night, Saturday night, we wanted to stay up late and watch The Twilight Zone or Saturday Night Live. And then on Sundays, we'd come home from church and want to watch The Wonderful World of Disney, a two or three hour movie, preceded by Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And so there's five kids, and there's only eight hours of TV a week we can watch, unless, unless mom watched it with us. <laughs> this was trickery. We'd come home from school, We'd say, Mom, come sit on the couch. We'd turn on the TV. She'd go out to do some things, but we made sure she kept coming back in so she could watch. And we could get as many hours as we could squeeze out of this time. As I got older, sometimes my brother Thomas and I would stay up late. My dad might have been out at a meeting or something. And in case the other kids got up, we didn't want them to see us. So we sat behind this little coffee table and behind the couch, and we slept low, and we would, we would watch Heart to Heart or Remington Steel or whatever was on late at night, and Mom would let us just sneak there and sit there. But as soon as the car pulled in the driveway, as soon as Dad got home, we had to run to our rooms. <laughs> Jacob and Esau. Rebecca and Isaac. It helps to have the parents on the, the same page. But relationships aren't perfect. Marriages aren't perfect. I remember taking a course in seminary, marriage counseling with Dr. Ronald Hawkins. Later became a president of Western Seminary and then went back to Liberty where he was the dean of the, 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 the theology uh, 
the seminary school. He had written a book titled Strengthening Marital Intimacy, and in that book, he talks about how to, to build a stronger foundation in your relationship. But what I remember him most talking about was he was talking about in, in, in marriage and in relationships, what can happen over time is erosion. I picture this embankment as we're driving along the highway, we're looking to the side of the road, and you see the, the hill that once upon a time the graders and the pavers paved through there, but now there's this hill left over, and as the elements hit it with force. I looked at the different kinds of erosion, and there's water erosion, there's wind erosion, there's glacial erosion. With water, water flows over the surface, and it can create channels. Gullies, canyons, you've seen it. The cliff or the side of the road, the side of the hill starts to erode away. If there's not enough ground cover, if there's not enough vegetation, if there's not enough holding it down or reinforcing or strengthening it, there's wind erosion. The wind blows, it picks up and removes the particles, moves them from their place, especially when there's no vegetation to keep it down. There's glacial erosion, that's where massive bodies of ice, but, but sometimes I think there's things underneath the surface that are moving the ground, things we can't see, those tectonic plates. They can shift the ground and carry away large chunks and large rocks and large boulders and it leaves everybody, everything else rearranged. It moves those stabilizing forces that it kept that relationship together. Then I think of coastal erosion. Just at the beach for a week with Brother Dan over here. Those waves, they come and they pound in. And it's fascinating what, what great force. And, you know, when you really think about it, you know, they catch salmon off of the Columbia River, off the Willamette River. The river rises as the tide comes in and the fish come with it. And then it goes out and such tremendous force and movement. But that constant beating, that constant pounding against the shore can erode things away. I don't know if you can relate, maybe you've been married, maybe you've not, but if you are married or if you've been married or whatever, and you never thought, well, this will never happen to me. But then you wake up one day, you find out there's been this erosion. And erosion took place over time. It didn't happen overnight. We're not going to necessarily solve it overnight. But here's the challenge. The challenge comes in Christian marriage. First of all, it takes two to tango. It takes two to argue and to fight. In Christian marriage, it takes three to make the marriage right. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 12 tells us this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. One of the best gifts parenting, parents can give to their children is a good and godly marriage. They have that foundation in the home. But sometimes, you know, it's not always smooth. It's not always pretty. It's not always perfect. We're in desperate need of God's grace. This is where you want to go to the one, the, the, the one true God, the capital O, God in heaven, who in Revelation 21 verse 5 says this, Behold, I am making all things new. We go to that godly foundation. And just some practical ways if you've experienced erosion in marriage, maybe you're there, maybe you'll be there someday. But some advice that I got online was this. Identify the issues. What's causing the erosion? 
This can be done through reflection, talking to your partner, acknowledging the problems and agreeing to work together. Number two, communication. To communicate open and honestly. And then there may be times, number three, where you seek professional help or godly counsel. I mean, God has given us the tools we need in his word and he's given us people in his church. And there's times where you go to somebody in the church, another couple or, or a group of people and say, would you pray for us? Or somebody else and say, would you walk us through this? And there's times where you go in for professional help to work through the underlying issues. Then to invest in your relationship and practice forgiveness. Because there's nothing the enemy would like to do more than to undermine, to sabotage, to erode your relationship. Isaac and Rebecca, I bring this up because something happened. <laughs> We're one-sided with Jacob, one-sided with Esau, and the, together they sided against each other. And scripture never says that later on Isaac and Rebecca were just sitting around and laughing about how Jacob tricked Esau into giving away the blessing and now he got to go leave the promised land. Scripture doesn't say they laughed it out, but you know what it does say? Esau, though he was bitter, he forgave. Esau forgave and they reconciled. They came back together. It took time, but God worked through that and God still had this plan. And one of the key things I would encourage us as parents together, working together, is identify those special traits about your children because they're all different. Maybe you only have one. But every person is unique. Everyone is different. And to, to, to zero in on their, not just their, their key strengths and their core traits and competencies, but their God-given purpose. God's plan, how God is molding and forming them to do what he wants them to do and to be who he wants them to be. Some practical advice to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. Whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. <laughs> the next um, person who I want to highlight in the Bible was a godly one. Her name seldom gets attention. We forget to say it out loud. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. Because oftentimes the person who gets the credit is not the mom, but the daughter who received the instruction, I want you to look out for your brother. I want you to take care of my son. But in Exodus chapter 1 and in Exodus chapter 2, God's people are now in the land of Egypt. They came in a time of famine and God delivered them, but then they settled and they stayed a very long time. And eventually, a new ruler rose up. And he looked out over the land and he, he told the midwives, I want you to kill all the Hebrew children under two years old. When they were born, the midwives were to be killing them as they came out of the womb. And maybe I got the two years old thing kind of confused with Jesus, but as the Hebrew women were giving birth, the midwives were to put them to death. There was a godly mother named Jochebed. 
And Jochebed, her name is only found two times in Scripture. That's the mother of Moses. And you'll find her name twice in Scripture, almost like an honorable mention in a list of names that existed in the Bible. Jochebed would fit that theme that the apostles declared in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Because the command was given to kill the Hebrew children, but Jochebed said no. I think about the millions of women in our world today, in our culture, in our nation, who have that pressure, if not temptation, to eliminate their kin, their children, before they're born, before they come out of the womb. Pharaoh was advocating for infanticide. As they're born, you're to put them to death. And Jochebed spoke up and, and, and said to her daughter, Miriam, we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the son and the midwives. God was with them. They went along. We're going to put him in a basket. We're going to float him in the Nile River. We're going to place him where the princess will come to bathe. And maybe she will take notice. And when she does, Miriam, you be there and you offer to take this child. And we will preserve his life. We must obey God rather than men. And Jochebed was willing to risk her own life to do this heroic and courageous act. Many mothers are willing to risk their lives for their children, would put themselves before their sons, before their daughters, to spare them. We need women of conviction who will do what is right. Convictions can be defined as basic commands of scripture that I have purpose to follow whatever the cost. And so as Moses was born, Moses became one of the greatest leaders of all times. One of the greatest leaders of all times, he, he led the million man plus march out of, the, out of Egypt and through the wilderness toward the promised land. Moses, a mighty man of God, who God used his foibles and his pitfalls and his mistakes and still rearranged it for his glory. But it was because of his mom, risking it all to spare his life. Jochebed, hardly see her name, but she put his life before her own. And as a parent, I implore you to instill those convictions in your kids. What is willing, what is worth following no matter what the cost? Laying your life down for, if not following Christ. Adhering to his word. Ingraining the truth of scripture in their hearts and in their minds so that they can live it out with their lives. Number four, listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. One of the other mighty godly women and moms in scripture is a woman who has no name except to be known as the wife of Manoah, Samson's mom. Now, when you think of Samson, you may or may not think of him as the godliest guy or the mightiest leader, but what he did in his day and age were absolutely heroic feats. But his inception and coming conception Samson's mom, she was childless. She was barren. She wanted to, to be pregnant. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, her and said in Judges chapter 13, 
you are going to give birth to a son. And so she told this to her husband and she prayed and the angel of God came back and he gave them this instruction. The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink any wine or other fermented drink or eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. See, a godly woman, a godly mother will listen to the Lord and get instruction from Him and then impart that. Follow that and impart that, that to their children. She did exactly what God commanded. And if you read the chapter, you'll also see that she was spiritually discerned. This angel of the Lord did come back. They did have this worship time around the altar and then the, the angel of the Lord ascended in a flame and it was in that moment that her husband shouted out we're doomed we're dead we've seen the Lord he's going to kill us but his wife answered Judges 13 23 if the Lord had meant to kill us he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands nor shown us all these things or now told us this I think Kevin Stansfield would agree that, man, sometimes we really need to listen to our godly wives and what they have to say as they impart instruction because oftentimes they've got a more discerning sense, a more discerning spirit than even we do at times. That's right. <laughs> Tuning into the Lord. Often it's the wife or the woman who remains spiritually steadfast and strong in her resolve and in her wisdom Trusting in the Lord. Men, we can tend to be impulsive, knee-jerk reactions. We're people of action, people of adventure. We want to do it. But a discerning woman who waits and prays and listens and obeys the Lord. Well, then in 1 Samuel, there was a, another godly mom. Her name was Hannah. Hannah waited and she prayed. She too was childless and was barren, and in her anguish she prayed for a son. She asked God for a son, and she made to God a promise. Lord, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him to you. And she followed through. She gave birth to a son, and she weaned him, but when he was old enough, when he was at age, she left him in the sanctuary to do the Lord's work, to do the Lord's will, to do the Lord's ministry. And parents, we should be actively commissioning our kids, dedicating them to the Lord, asking God to have His hand on their lives, training them up in the nurture and the wisdom and the admonition of the Lord, and then turning them over to serve and to follow Him. Some of you have a child who is going to be going away soon. School, college, life, adventure. And they say, God, I am trust." my son and my daughter, to your care. In the absence of strong spiritual leadership by a husband in the home, God often uses the woman, the mother, to be that source of inspiration and wisdom. And Samuel kept her promise and became an example of what I see in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, where, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those hearts, who are fully committed to him. And in Samuel's lifetime, not only was he bold and brave enough to confront Eli for his wickedness as priest 
in God's temple. But he also was the one God used to anoint and appoint two kings over Israel. Even though it's not what God had wanted, and he knew that. He still was obedient to the Lord in doing what God wanted him to do. And I could go on and on. There are so many wonderful mothers and women in the Bible. Like Sarah, the mother who waited. Hagar, the mother who endured. Naomi, the mother-in-law who shared her faith. And Ruth, who became the great-grandmother of King David. We could talk about how grandparents, grandmothers, have had influence over their grandkids. And have been the ones that have pointed the way or taken them under their wing and nurtured the care and, and gave them the foundation that they need or the love that they so desperately long for. We can go on and on. But like the writer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, he says, I do not have time to tell you about. And goes on with a big, big list of names. Elizabeth, for example, the mother of John the Baptist, the mother who believed. I just want to end on Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because Mary, the mother of Jesus, Gabriel, the angel, came to her at night and gave her this revelation. You will give birth to a son. You're, you're going to be, he's going to be born of a virgin. And in that moment, she demonstrated incredible faith. She didn't waver. She didn't flinch. She didn't hold back. She didn't reject. She didn't ignore. She didn't run away. She simply accepted God's divine calling and task on her life as a servant. Not regarding human misperception and misconceptions and judgment and shame. And how she would be viewed. She said, may it be to me as you have said. And she accepted God's plan for her life. And she praised the Lord. She praised the Lord for this season and for that reason. She marveled in God for making this happen, that she would be found worthy and she was obedient even through the storm. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And isn't that often what a mother does? Where dads are, are quick to react like the, the guy who gets out of a car and picks up his child with like a suitcase because he won't tolerate belligerent behavior, but we'll just take action. The mom who sits back and says, okay, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait and I'm going to love and I'm going to nurture and I'm going to breathe life into my child's life. Mary marveled at the miracle and the miracles of God. She raised up her son diligently and faithfully at some point. Joseph was out of the picture. It's presumed that he, he died before she did. And she let him go when she should. She understand he had his father's work. He had his father's business and that he was not of this world and, and that she served her purpose and yet she stood by and she was present even at the cross where her son with outstretched arms suffered and bled and died, and before he had his last breath. It says in John chapter 19, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, 
Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Because not only did Mary care, but Jesus, Jesus cared for her too. For you mothers, one of the greatest gifts is when your sons and your daughters care. When they let you know, I love you. When they remember the great sacrifices and all the things that you made to build into their lives as well. The sacrifices. Those little things, and the, whether they're great or small. And so today is a day of appreciating moms. What have you learned from your mom? How, how can you look back on the way your mom raised you? And even if you didn't have the smoothest home life, or are there some good things you could take from that and say, thank you, mom, for everything that you've done for me, the ways you sacrificially served me, how you stood by your convictions, how you put your hands in God's and entrusted us to Him. What kind of impact has your mom made on your life and what kind of impact do you want to make on others? We can learn a lot from the Bible, but in the end here, Jesus, even knowing he was going to the cross, he would be crucified, he'd die, he'd raise again, he'd ascend into heaven. He took care of his mom. He wanted to make sure she was taken care of. What a beautiful picture. And so today I want each one of us to just pause and think, what kind of a gift, what kind of expression, what kind of a way of saying things can we give to our moms? How can we honor our mothers? Let's pray. Lord, as we, um, as we take this time, we're reminded by examples in Scripture. And God, we, we thank you for the moms who look to you for help, who recognize their children as a gift from you and their pride and their joy. God, who dedicated them to you, who listened to you, and then carried out your instruction. And God, we pray for your divine help, your empowerment, your enablement over us as parents, over us as we speak and build into their lives. And God, for those of us who are married, may we be on the same page. May we be working together, realizing we can't do it on our own, but through the divine help of you, a cord of three strands that is not quickly broken. And God, who knows what great leader, what great person is in front of us, or how you'll use even the least of these to further your kingdom and to make a difference for eternity. God, I pray that our children might know the Lord. I'm asking you, God, that they would grow up in a godly home. And if not, if they don't have a godly home, that you'd use the mothers, that you'd use the grandmothers, that you'd use the women in this church, the men as well, to touch their lives, to reach these for Christ. And God, we look forward to the great celebration in your kingdom when Christ comes again. Help us, God, to have a personal faith 
trust in you. Lord, we come to you saying, God, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins and he arose from the dead. And I come to you confessing my sins and inviting you into my life. God, please forgive me and please save me. For it's by grace, through faith, we're saved. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May God bless each one of you. Don't forget your flowers. Have a great Sunday. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.